there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one transcendent page of Talmud every day. And in today's pages, Yevamot 3233, well, turns out that location is everything until the very end. Have a listen. Rather, Rava said that when Rabbi Yosei stated in the Baraita that the man is liable due to both prohibitions for a brother's wife and for a wife's sister, he meant to say, I ascribe to him liability as though he transgressed twice, since indeed he violated two prohibitions, yet he is liable to receive punishment in human courts on only one count. And likewise, when Ravin came from Eretz Israel to Babylonia, he said that Rabbi Yochanan said, I ascribe to him liability as though he transgressed twice, yet he is liable to receive punishment on only one count. The Gemara asks, what difference does it make if we considered it as though he transgressed twice? In other words, okay, well, someone did something. Was it only one transgression? Was it two transgressions? Does it really matter? The Gemara answers. It affects the decision whether or not to bury him among the completely wicked. Just as a righteous individual is not buried among the wicked, so too a wicked individual is not buried among those more wicked than himself. He who violated this prohibition is considered as though he committed two transgressions and not one. And so he would be buried accordingly. Now, you don't have to really understand the full intricacies of of this notion of whether or not someone by doing something actually committed only one transgression or if his transgression is so great that it could be counted as two transgressions. What is really interesting here is the question of the precise spot of the burial. And to answer that question, I have the pleasure of welcoming to the show Rivka Slonim, the Associate Director for Ror Chabad Center for Jewish Student Life in the great University of Binghamton. Rivka, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am delighted you're here because I'm having a very hard time understanding this. I can understand the sort of intricacies of, well, you know, should this transgression be counted as one or two? But then the Gemara goes into this question of burial. Well, if you did something so bad, you should be buried among the wicked. It's one thing, but, you know, maybe you shouldn't. Honestly, you know, let me be blunt here. Isn't a burial a burial? Does it really matter where you're buried? I mean, you're already dead. You're already laid in the ground. Why does it matter where exactly you're buried and among what kind of people? Well, I guess we make a good couple. I'm glad you understand the intricacies of the general topic here in the Gemara, because I was having a hard time following. I guess I would have to learn many more times. And I'm having an easier time understanding uh, the aspect of the Gemara that speaks to the burial. And perhaps a good place to begin is to just look at the three different terms in the Hebrew language for a cemetery. So we have, of course, Beit HaKvarot, which means a house of graves. But then we have another term, Beit Olam, the eternal home. And finally, Beit HaChayim, the home of the living. And when we look especially at the last two names, it gives us a peephole into the enormity and the profundity of Jewish teaching on what the Lavatrevi called higher life. He uh, completely eschewed the term afterlife. He said there's no after because the soul doesn't die but there is higher life. And life is described as eternal. And so when we go to the cemetery, we're going to the Beit Olam, to the eternal home, to the Beit HaChayim, to a home of living. And that's kind of expressed in many ways 
including a rather poignant uh, custom for those men who wear their tzitzit, their fringes, their ritual fringes hanging outside, to tuck those in so as to not arouse the kind of envy or the discomfort of the souls who can no longer practice mitzvot in their current state. So we have a lot of indication that, you know, far from going to a place simply for sentimental reasons or uh, just to serve some kind of emotional uh, purpose for those who are coming, that the soul actually lives robustly and that we get to communicate with the soul by going there. And before I speak about this a little bit more on the mystical level, I just wanted to point out that in some very well-known verses from the book of Ruth, we have the touching and moving words of Ruth to her mother-in-law who tries to dissuade her from going with her. And she tells her, go, go follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you to turn back and not follow you. And then she says the famous words, wherever you go, I will go where you lodge, I will lodge, your people are my people, and your God is my God. And then she continues to say, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And of course, this could be a sort of saying, I will follow you to Israel, uh, despite all the hardships involved in that, and I will die where you will die, and I'll be buried there. But Rashi actually tells us, in, in something that's very related to this Talmudic passage, that what uh, what her mother-in-law was saying was, you know, that it's difficult to be a Jew, and there are actually four different ways in which the Jewish court, the Beitin, might have to administer corporal punishment to somebody who trespasses those particular sins, etc. And she said, okay, wherever you die, I will die. In other words, in the way that you're punished, I, I am raised, except that I'll be punished. And there I will be buried. And this is an allusion to this idea that although there are four different modes of death that were enacted by the Beitin, but within those four, they're subdivided into different categories. And so people who were killed for certain sins were not buried with those who are killed for other sins, lesser sins, which is the same idea being made on this page of the Talmud. So that the soul has, like I said, a very vibrant and robust experience. And certainly, just like a person who is living feels who is in their company, and are they in the right place? And is this place comfortable? And is this place appropriate to who they are on every level? And understanding this gives us the ability to understand so much about Jewish custom and the Jewish infatuation with going to grave sites, whether it be before Rosh Hashanah at the beginning of the year or close to the site, which is the anniversary of the death of a certain person. We have customs like going to the grave sites of grandparents, or even in the case where parents are deceased before the children get married, and delivering a wedding invitation to invite the souls to join the bride and groom under the chuppah. And all of this only makes sense if we understand a little bit more about what happens in the grave. So in 1951, my grandfather who had been a uh, very close and devout adherent of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, the sixth in a dynasty of seven Rebbe's, wrote to the man who would become his successor shortly thereafter. He wrote to him asking, why do you go to your father-in-law's grave site so often 
you can surely communicate with him from other places. And the Rebbe explained to him that when you go to the gravesite of somebody, there is one aspect of the soul. There are actually five strata to the soul. And the lowest one remains hovering over the gravesite always. And when you go to the gravesite, you're able to connect to the soul in a very different way than you could connect anywhere else. And then he actually added, specifically by standing at the feet of the deceased, that is where it's easiest to connect to this aspect of the soul. Uh, the Zoharic teachings expound and tell us that when one connects with that lowest aspect of the soul, it rises upward and it arouses the higher levels of the soul. And those levels of the soul go before God and beseech before God for, you know, a mercy and, and to fulfill the needs that are being prayed for down here below. So when I read this page, that's what jumped out at me immediately. Rivka Slanim, what a beautiful, touching explanation. Thank you so much for being our guest. You're so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity and wishing everybody and all good things. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay and Quinn Waller. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Mark Oppenheimer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic and we will see you again soon.